We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And the main focus of this morning will be on verses 22 and 23. We're reading Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You may be seated. We'll keep your Bibles open there to Matthew chapter 6. And as Caleb mentioned, we read uh, more than what is our focus this morning in order to provide some context. Because when you approach verses 22 and 23, you may think that this is rather difficult to understand. And looking at these verses in isolation certainly seems pretty mysterious. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Well, passages like this remind us that while Scripture was certainly written for us, since it is God's special revelation to all believers, it was not originally written to us. The biblical text is not rooted in our culture, but in that of the ancient Near East. But there are many phrases and sayings that are clear to us that would be a complete mystery to someone in first century Israel, even if they were translated into their language. There's more than one way to skin a cat. This food will knock your socks off. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, these phrases and their meanings are familiar to us, but the words themselves are actually pretty strange, and they would make little sense to anyone from a different culture. And so sometimes we have to do a little bit of work to fully understand some difficult verses. After all, Matthew's gospel was written in Greek to Jewish Christians between 55 and 65 AD. And so when we come to difficult verses, we must resist the urge to simply scratch our heads and move on to more familiar territory. As we shall see this morning, this passage has a lot to teach us and will challenge us. The main idea that we will garner is this, fixing our eyes on Christ keeps us spiritually healthy. But shifting our gaze to worldly riches blurs our spiritual vision and can blind us to the things of God. Now, in order to arrive at that understanding of these verses about the eye being the lamp of the body, we'll first examine the context. Secondly, we'll explain the concept. And then third, we will explore the consequences of these truths. Let's first spend some time establishing the context. 
As is always the case, the context of the passage provides us with a great deal of help in rightly understanding it. Context puts up guardrails that keep us from going off the right path when interpreting and applying difficult verses. So first we need to examine the immediate context. If we look up in our Bibles, just a few verses, we see in verses 19 to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. In other words, don't focus on material wealth, but on spiritual health. We look below our passage down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Put it another way, we, we must not and we cannot pursue both Christ and riches. So our passage is bookended by these teachings on how Christians are to engage with money and the importance of not allowing wealth and material goods to become our focus in this life. Now, if we were to zoom out just a bit and consider the broader context, we see that here in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ has been laying out the difference between true righteousness and that of the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus has been giving a number of lessons through contrast. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. And so our passage is embedded in a section of Matthew's gospel that has to do with distinguishing between hypocrisy and true religion. So having established some boundaries of meaning for our passage, by looking at the immediate and the broader context, we also take into consideration the context of the whole of Scripture. Are there other passages of Scripture that speak of our eyes in this way? Well, what, well, what we read in verse 23 is, if your eye is bad... A literal translation would be, if your eye is evil. And having an evil eye is encountered several times in the Bible. Proverbs 23, verses 6 and 7. In the King James Version, which retains the phrase evil eye, we read, Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. Listen to how the ESV renders that same verse. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Proverbs 28, 22 in the King James, he that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. In the ESV, a stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. 
Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 20, verse 15, this is uh, in the parable of the workers in the vineyard. You recall that all of them got paid the same amount, even though some worked the entire day through the heat and hard labor, and some came at the end of the day and only worked a few hours. Even so, they were all paid the same, and those that worked long hours were upset. Well, the owner says to them in the ESV, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? However, the King James renders this as, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Clearly the phrase evil eye has to do with the concept of money, just as our passage does. To have an evil eye is to be tight-fisted, stingy, focusing on gaining wealth for yourself and having a distaste for sharing it with others. And the opposite of this, a good eye indicates the opposite attitude towards money. As in Proverbs 22, 9, Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. And as you may have guessed, bountiful eye is literally good eye. Whoever has a good eye is blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. In fact, this phrase in Hebrew is still used today when raising money for a cause. Jewish people will often encourage people to give with a good eye as a call of generosity towards others. So what is it that we can establish by looking at the context of our passage? Well, to have a good eye is to be generous and not in love with the riches of this world. To have a bad eye is to be stingy and covetous, eager to pursue wealth even at the expense of pursuing God. Well, with these guardrails in place, we can be more confident that we will not wander astray with our interpretation and our application, knowing that they must be related to how we are to use money in a way that honors God. That is, that is where we must remain in terms of rightly understanding our passage. So let's look more closely at our verses and consider the concept that is being taught here. Let's look now at at the concept itself, starting with verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Well, what does it mean for an eye to be a lamp? Don't get too caught up in the anatomy of of the situation here. Although the eye does not, of course, produce a light of its own as, as a candle in a lantern does, the eye is still how light enters the body. And as a result, it is the means by which we see and we apprehend the world around us. It's how your eyes work. That's how we are able to see things. So in that sense, the eye does illuminate like a lamp. If your eye is good and it is healthy, your world is full of light and you can see everything around you. Jesus is using this physical reality in order to explain a spiritual one. We are called to walk in the light as he is in the light. And if we do not, our spiritual world will grow increasingly dim 
until all is black. And we become as unaware of spiritual things as a blind person is unable to see their surroundings. And it's also important to note that the term or the word I here does not only indicate the means by which we see things. It's used in much the same way as we would use the word heart, not just as the organ that pumps blood to keep us alive, but as the seat of our affections, our desires, our focus. Someone can have a heart for the lost. They can set their heart on something. They can put their whole heart into their labor, into their work. Well, in much the same way, setting your eye on something is to set your focus, your attention, your desire, your affection on something. It is to make it your priority in this life. And as Christians, we know that what we set our eyes and our hearts and our minds on has a profound effect on our spiritual well-being. Just as the mouth is the entrance to a person's stomach, the eye is in many ways the entrance to the heart or to the soul of a person, which is what is being said here in verse 22. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. The word translated healthy in this sentence is literally the word single, meaning that the eye is focused on one object. It has a singular purpose and it is not distracted from it. Other translations will render that word as clear. And we have a similar expression that we use today, don't we? When we say someone has clear eyes, we mean that they're focused on the right things. They're perceptive. They're not distracted or having their vision clouded by something else. To have an eye that is healthy and single and clear means that our eyes are set on their proper object, that we have a singular, undistracted purpose, and that we have given our full attention to it. While an evil eye has to do with an unhealthy and sinful focus on money, Having a healthy, good, or clear eye is to be free from such, such pollutions and defects in our spiritual vision. We're not caught up in the pursuit of wealth and worldly goods. Rather than attempting to fix our gaze on, on two objects at the same time and, and becoming spiritually cross-eyed, we remain fixed on Christ. And we're able to prevent, to prevent ourselves from pursuing worldly treasures that do not last and that ultimately lead us away from our Savior. And the result of setting our focus on Christ, who is our light, is that His light is penetrating to our very souls. Picture a window where every pane of glass is clean and clear and it allows light to flood into a room. When we set our eyes on their proper object, which is God and obedience to him, our whole body will be full of light. And so the eye acts as a lamp, illuminating and bringing light, the light of life to our souls. To be full of light is to be filled with righteousness, to be following Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 4, 6 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Proverbs 4, 18 to 19 tells us, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They're blind. And just as with our physical eyes being able to take in light properly and allowing us to see the world around us, our spiritual eyes taking in the light of Christ means that we are able to rightly view the world around us and navigate it as we should. We won't exchange heavenly riches for worldly ones. We're less likely to fall into the many ditches of this world when we are making right assessments and judgments because we are focused on and filled with Christ and are pursuing him and his righteousness. Now, this manifests manifests itself in many ways, one of which is that we are generous with the things we have because we recognize that we are to use our money and our possessions with a generous heart towards others, doing them spiritual good, and as a result, storing up treasures in heaven, as we looked at last week. When our eye is directed towards its proper object, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus as our sole object of desire, everything becomes clear and healthy and full of light. But when we do not, our vision grows dim. Begin to to trip and to stumble and fumble in the dark. In order to drive this point home, Christ, he does. He looks at this way of the wicked and he provides this opposite example and its negative results. Look now to verse 23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? We've already established that for your eye to be bad or to be evil is to have an unhealthy, selfish, sinful fixation on money. One that causes you to place it above your spiritual duties to God and to pursue riches rather than Christ. You think of that same window from before, but this time each pane of glass is black with soot and dirt, preventing any light from entering the room. Well, a person whose eye, heart, and mind are clouded by greed and a desire for riches is becoming spiritually darkened. And if your physical eyes are bad, Through some defect or some injury, your world becomes dark. If your spiritual eyes are bad, if you are stingy, focused on riches, ungenerous, covetous, greedy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Because just as we saw last time, Our attitude towards worldly wealth is an indication of our spiritual health. 
Here, Jesus contrasts the person who has fixed their eyes on Christ and as a result holds on loosely to the things of this world to the person who is fixated on earthly goods and grasps them so tightly they lose sight of all else and in fact loosen their grip on Christ. If we develop an evil I, one that is set upon the treasures that this world has to offer, we will turn our eyes away from Christ. As we'll see in verse 24, it is an impossibility for the Christian to serve both God and money. And as our eye goes, so goes our conduct. The end result is that our whole body will be full of darkness. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, we read, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Why is that? They, they desire to be rich. Their spiritual vision becomes darker and darker, and so they, they, they wander into snares. They get into senseless and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and into destruction. They're not looking at Christ. They're pursuing what their, their flesh wants. They're pursuing wealth and riches, and so they're making decision after decision. First small ones and then larger ones, choosing the things of this world over Christ. And so that love of money becomes a root of all kinds of evils. And that craving causes them ultimately to wander away from the faith and to be pierced with many pangs. A love of money, a desire to be rich, it affects our ability to navigate this world as surely as blindness affects the ability of a person to navigate their surroundings. We become senseless to the spiritual duties, and we harm ourselves by blindly moving towards destruction. And if our vision is not corrected, we can wander away from the faith entirely. The tragedy of such a spiritual condition is what Christ is speaking of at the end of verse 23. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Well, what does, what does that mean? Jesus is the light of the world. He is the true light, John 1 says. If then we focus on any other thing to give us light and to illuminate our souls, we are setting our eyes on that which is not truly light at all. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, we read. If the light we have is, in fact, a false light, it is a source of darkness. And if the light we have is merely darkness, how great is that darkness? How great is the spiritual darkness of the soul which has exchanged the light of life for the false glimmer and glitter of worldly goods? The person whose eyes are fixed 
on the things of this world are blind to spiritual things, as was the rich young ruler who was instructed by Christ to go and sell all that he had and to follow him. But instead he went away sad because he valued his great wealth above following Jesus. He was blind. And this would be the tragic end for all of us if it were not for the gospel of Christ, which God gave to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. As we read in Acts 26, 18, it was this light of Christ which took Zacchaeus from being a swindling, thieving tax collector to restoring all that he had taken fourfold and giving half of his goods to the poor, to which Christ joyfully exclaimed, Today salvation has come to this house. Salvation came not as a result of Zacchaeus being generous, but because his salvation was made manifest by his generosity. His eye went from evil to healthy or good, and the light that was in him was shown forth in his good conduct towards others. And so we've come to have a proper understanding of these verses and and know what it is that they mean. We are to have a good or healthy or clear eye, keeping it fixed on Christ. We are not to have a bad or an evil eye, which instead of looking to Christ is distracted by the things that this world has to offer to the point that we pursue them more than Jesus. So the question that remains for us is how should we respond to these truths? What are the consequences of this passage for us as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, let's look thirdly and finally at the consequences. The first application of this passage is to recognize that all of us are due for a spiritual eye exam. When you have an astigmatism, your vision is blurry because of a defect within your eye. It is preventing light rays from meeting at a common focal point. Well, because our spiritual eyes are drawn towards money and material possessions and away from the light of Christ, we are all at risk of developing a spiritual astigmatism. A good eye is healthy and it's clear. And so it recognizes that heaven is where our true treasure lies And so that person lives life accordingly. That singular focus leads to a life of obedience, of generosity, of contentment with what the Lord has provided. A bad eye has poor spiritual vision. It views worldly treasures as supreme. The result? Our love and desire for spiritual things grows dim. Our focus on temporary earthly things grows greater and our ability to properly navigate this life as Christians is diminished as we needlessly fall into harm through our increasing blindness to a right spiritual assessment of the world around us. That can look like many things, but ultimately it boils down to making decisions that pursue and protect your treasures on earth 
at the expense of pursuing Jesus Christ. Do not allow yourself to be enticed into exchanging the true light for all that glitters in this world. If we attempt to keep our eyes fixed both on Christ and anything else, our vision will become blurred, distorted, and diminished. J.I. Packer wrote that laying up treasures on earth is dangerous because such treasure destroys spiritual awareness. If your eyes are filled with light and working properly, your body will be able to move easily and safely. If you can't see clearly, you will lack physical ease and poise. Similarly, if your heart is possessed by what this world and this life offers, you will not be able to see spiritual issues clearly. And when you read the Bible, its full meaning will escape you. You're becoming spiritually blind. So to give ourselves a spiritual eye exam, we must ask some hard questions. Have I become overly focused on the things of this world? Is that what occupies my thoughts, my desires, my daydreams? Has my longing for the treasures and comforts of this life surpassed my longing for the next? Are you so comfortable that you rarely think of and desire and wish for eternity with Christ? Is my focus on building my kingdom more and greater than my focus on building Christ's? Have my spiritual senses grown sharper or have they dulled? Am I generous with what God has given me or am I reluctant to bless others with what I have been blessed with? We all need a spiritual eye exam and we'll find ourselves in different places and with different results at different seasons of our lives. Even so, I do not expect that any of us possesses the spiritual equivalent of 2020 vision. So how can we go about correcting any issues that we discover in our eye exam? Well, given that our passage lays out two contrasting realities, our application of this passage falls within those same categories. We must ensure that our eyes, that is our attention, our affection, our focus, are turned away from riches and instead turned upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider first turning our eyes away from worldly wealth. Remember what we learned from the passage uh, and examining the context of our passage. To have an evil eye is to be stingy and greedy and focused on accumulating more for yourself and only giving grudgingly towards others. And so in order to retrain your eye to look less fixedly on money and possessions, you need to hold on to these things more loosely. And the best way to hold on to earthly riches more loosely is by being more generous. More generous with your time and your home and your resources and your money. Now, we're not all in the same position financially or even in the same stage of life. 
And so this looks different for each of us. Even so, we are to cultivate a heart of generosity towards others. Remember, we're to lay up our treasures in heaven and not on earth. And one way that we send those treasures on ahead of us for safekeeping is by giving them away to those in need. We also need to be honest about where it is that we focus our gaze. Are we constantly exposing ourselves to endless advertisements that are designed to make us discontent with what we already have by spending hours in front of the TV? Are we feeding jealousy and covetousness by what we are constantly scrolling through on Instagram or Pinterest or something else? Are we always looking over our neighbor's fence and wishing that we had that new car or boat or set of golf clubs or whatever else? Be mindful of what you are allowing your eyes to rest on each and every day. Be intentional about quickly redirecting your gaze away from such things and instead shifting them back to the blessings that are yours in Christ. Blessings that you enjoy now and those that you will enjoy later for eternity. Don't stoke the fires of discontentment and covetousness. Instead, we need to turn away from such things actively, constantly redirecting our gaze towards Jesus. We're to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Because that is the greatest means by which we can take our gaze away from the things of this world and direct it towards their proper object. There was a Puritan who wrote a work called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what uh, that was just Puritan speak for, you cannot just tell yourself to stop longing for something or to, to stop pursuing something, you have to present to your soul and to your eyes and to your mind a greater affection. So you can expel the lower, baser affection for want of something more and greater. And so the athlete can put up with the pain of training because they are pursuing something greater. There's lots of examples we could give to that end. And so it is true with riches and wealth and treasures. It's very difficult to just constantly tell ourselves to stop it unless we put before our eyes the realities and the treasures that are ours in Christ and that will be ours for all eternity with him. While that classic hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, it really has more to do with overcoming the difficulties of this life. Nevertheless, the chorus holds true for our purpose. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you want the things of earth to have less attraction for you, you need to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Only by presenting ourselves with a greater treasure can we come to ignore all of the trinkets that attempt to distract us on our pilgrimage to heaven. But how can we 
actually go about doing this? What practical steps can we take? What does it mean to turn our eyes upon Jesus? Well, first, we must be in his word. Scripture serves as our corrective lenses, allowing us to see Jesus Christ more clearly and fully and accurately. It is is constantly retraining our spiritual eyes to function as they ought. His word, after all, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So decrease your time spent window shopping what the world has to offer and increase your time looking into the treasure house that is, that is God's word. Not as hearers only, but as doers of the word. Read your Bibles, not only in the pursuit of information or doctrinal knowledge, but with the intent of getting to know your Savior more intimately. Study it to know him more. Think much on Jesus Christ, Christian. Dwell on him and his excellencies. Constantly hold Jesus up as that which you are pursuing and desiring to know. You must also be in prayer. Pray that God would increase your love and affection for Christ and draw your hearts away from the worldly treasures that would seek to ensnare you. This is the the kind of prayer that our Father in heaven delights to answer, that we would grow in our appreciation, our affection, our desire for Christ, and that the things of earth would grow strangely dim to us as we do so, no longer shining and distracting us along our way, But instead, we will recognize that this world is not our home. We are merely passing through. And so we would not stop upon our important errands to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to bend over and pick up worthless trash along the roadside. Another thing that we can do in order to turn our eyes upon Jesus is to be with those who love Christ well. Do not forsake the assembling together of other Christians. Cling to those who cling to Christ, and they will direct your gaze heavenward. This is true in many lesser areas of life. If you have a hobby you enjoy or something you are passionate about, well, clubs and groups form around these things because those who have like-minded desires and passions are able to fuel those in a healthy way when they are together with those who share them. That is, that is perfectly right and good as long as it doesn't get too out of hand, which we're, we're quick to make the case, unfortunately. In a greater, more spiritual sense, by gathering together with other believers for worship on the Lord's day, during the week in fellowship, for Bible studies, for any number of things, we will be around those who share a desire to make Jesus Christ their greater desire. And we can spur one another on towards that end. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Be in his word. Be in prayer. Be among other believers who are straining their eyes to look at Jesus and keep them fixed with blinders on towards the things of this life. Because only when our spiritual vision is corrected can we navigate this life as followers of Christ are called to do. 
We are to use money and worship Christ, not the other way around. It is only by having a right focus on Christ that we can unblur our vision and gain a clear picture of the foolishness of placing temporary wealth above the treasures that are ours in Jesus. So don't spend your days chasing after things that now will be useless in eternity. Rather, focus on Christ and pursue that which is valuable now and forever. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Look to Christ with clear, singular, healthy eyes. And as you take in his all-surpassing worth, let us be renewed in our desire to share his light with those around us. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that so often we are distracted with, with that which glitters and glimmers in this world. God, renew our strength and our resolve that we would constantly be desirous to turn away from such things and turn back to you. May the depth at which we, we pursue such things ever decrease. May the length of time in which our eyes are, are turned aside get shorter and shorter as by your spirit you make us stronger, more resistant to the siren call of this world to pursue wealth, riches, material goods, comforts above Jesus. So that when those decision points come and they come each and every day, some small, some large, we will be quick to keep our feet on the path that is illuminated by your word, path of righteousness and obedience, following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We will not be tempted to turn aside to the right or to the left, chasing after some worthless trinket at the expense of pursuing eternal treasures with you. God, may that be so in each of our hearts here this morning. May we be ever seeking to be in your words that we would know you more. Help us to read scripture with fresh eyes and with desire to see and to savor Jesus Christ, our Savior. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, thank you, brother, for being faithful to labor well, to be able to make a passage that's not immediately clear to us, to be so um, easy to understand, the meaning clear before us, to challenge and edify us. And sometimes Scripture is a labor of love to understand and to be able to expound. So we do thank you. We turn our attention now towards the Lord's table as we do each week. Such a fitting message, and I, I probably say that most weeks, uh, such a fitting message to lead us to the Lord's table. But Scripture points us to Christ, and when we are pointed to Christ, it is that's what the Lord's table is, is to direct our gaze and our attention back to Christ, back to His sacrifice for us, back to our finding our acceptance before God in His broken body, in His shed blood. And Christ said, if, if, if you will 
not eat my body and drink my blood, then you have no place with me. He, he had a large crowd following him until he said that. And there weren't going to be a lot around after he said that. Very hard things to understand, but made very clear as, he, as he, his body was broken and his blood was, blood was shed for us, that it's in that sacrifice that we have our place before God, that we are restored to a right relationship with him. And it is in this ordinance that we observe every week that we have this tangible reminder If you are visiting with us this morning and your conscience is clear according to Scripture that there is nothing holding you back, there is no discipline in another church or, or fractured relationships that would keep you from this, um, then we invite you to come and join us. And for all of us, if you are following Christ, if you are following in obedience to Christ, not in perfection, but in regular obedience, repenting when you sin, knowing with confidence that when we repent, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so that if that is your path that you are following and walking with Christ, then I urge you to be able to come and join and take of this table as this, this tangible reminder of what He has done for us and of our clinging to Christ. So I invite you to come forward. Uh, in just a few minutes, we'll take these together. I invite you to join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you regularly, continually for the sacrifice of your Son. For our restored relationship with you that we could never have obtained, we could never have earned. That our relationship was so fractured that the only means of bringing us before you again was to send your Son to have his body broken, his blood shed for us. So as we take these, these elements, Lord, we confess anew that our only hope is in Christ, that there is nowhere else for us to go. There's no one else to whom we will turn because he has the words of life. In him is life. In him is light. We confess our need for Him, our dependence on Him, our love for Him, and our determination to be obedient to Him. Bless us, encourage us, and strengthen us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We read in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he continued to tell them, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And as we remember the sacrifice of Christ, remember that this, the salvation we have in this life is not the end of the story. It's not the fullness of what has been purchased for us. Our catechism questions of the past few weeks have been pointing that to. What does is, what is the believer gain at different stages, at, in, in this life, at death, at the resurrection, we know that there is more to come. There is greater to come. So as we remember what He has done, we look forward earnestly to that day when we will be with Him in eternity to feast and to dwell and to commune.